This is your sh- your Wednesday discussions of truth with your host Ian Hamilton Trottier. That's a little as always. Seek and destroy. Thank you, James Hetfield. Not sure who wrote that one, but uh, whoever it was, Lars. Uh, that's quite the song. And and look, when you listen to that, seek and destroy. Let that remind you of the goal of this program that I release into the stratosphere on a weekly basis from the Wynwood District of Miami, Florida. Seek out corruption and destroy it. That's the goal. So let me jump right in, and and I want to first off say thanks for listening um, the three folks that I gave a ride to uh, last week from England, uh, cheers to you. Thanks for following me. Thanks for listening to me. And uh, hopefully um, <clears throat> what I've got here can help you. There's a lot to go over, but I want to jump right into Bees, Bud, and Bear. And this is coming from a uh, longtime friend of mine, fellow ad- advocate for freedom and liberty, justice, truth, and that's Miriam Hennon. Miriam is based in Hollywood. Vanishing of the Bees, the documentary she released a number of years ago to help educate folks on the importance of understanding that bees. The honeybees are dying. Yeah, I heard that that the honeybees, and this is this is the this is the significance of honeybees. My understanding is that honeybees are important to the tune of about a third of the world supply of food. Okay, so about a third of all the food, if you will, that you intake, you can credit honeybees. For delivering that. I know for a matter of fact that honeybees pollinate crops that feed the food for horses to eat to produce milk. Okay, so a, a decline in honeybees, a honeybee population will affect your, your dairy industry, your cheese industry. If you like ice cream, you like ice cream, then you like honeybees. Uh, going to almonds, blueberries. How about cotton? You like wearing clothes? Like buying expensive clothes? Look fancy? Okay. If there is cotton in any of your clothes, the vanishing of the honeybees will affect the cotton industry. Okay. So some of these kind of average things that we take for granted in our daily life will be totally affected if we continue to allow honeybees to vanish. 
Next week, I host Nomi Prince. She's a former managing director of Goldman Sachs. She possibly is best known for her book, All the President's Bankers, The Hidden Alliances That Drive American Power. She'll be talking about her new book, Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. I'll repeat that. How Central Bankers Rigged the World. Don't take that lightly. And in about 10 minutes, we'll bring on a native of New York, Ray McGovern. 27-year career with the CIA, spreading from the JFK administration to the George H.W. Bush administration. He's very outspoken about elements of today's life in America, and rightfully so. So that's Ray McGovern. Switch now to what I promised when I opened the show to talk a little bit about the honeybees. So bees, bud, and bear. As you must know, Miriam says. This is an excerpt from Miriam. After two years, it's finally happening. Bear is swallowing Monsanto. Bear is a product of the F, uh, I, uh, IG Farben Company. World War II, that's Germany. That's where Bear comes from. You got to look into the roots of some of these companies, where they came from, who they're associated with. You think it has no relevance? I think otherwise, and that's why I address them on my program. For $63 billion and just, and as many suspended, excuse me, suspected, the 117-year-old name Monsanto will be retired. Why do you think Blockwater changed its name to XE and then Academy? Okay, this is Miriam Hennon. This is not me. I'm simply reading this to you because this information needs to get out, gets out, get, get out. Years from now, for the future generations whose brains are scrambled, scrambled from poisons and are genetically modified existence, the name Monsanto will be long forgotten. But the damage inflicted on people and planet will still be very much alive. Operation, if you've listened to this show before, you will know that it is. Okay, skipping that part. I'll come back to it. The DOG. Department of Justice refused to reject the merger, despite finding it would result in excessive concentration. 17 separate markets involving genetically engineered soybean, cotton, canola, and corn, the pesticides used with them, and vegetable seeds. Instead, it is forcing Bayer to divest certain seed, genetically engineered trait, and pesticide assets to German chemical giant BASF. Meanwhile, I assigned, Miriam says, an article to my senior editor at HoneyColony.com titled The CBD Takeover. Big Pharma makes its move with Epidiolex. After years of angling to take control of the CBD oil market, Big Pharma is about to pounce with its brand new cannabis-based drug, Epidiolex, slated for June 27th release. The legal status of CBD oil as a nutritional supplement is being threatened by drug companies such as GW Pharma, coincidentally partnered with my friend at Bayer. How can the DEA justify the ongoing prohibition of CBD-rich cannabis, a safe medicinal substance with no adverse side effects that doesn't even get you high? Question mark. Unfortunately, CBD may just be too good 
It's showing promise for a wide range of ailments, and the drug industry sees CBD as a major competition, and rightfully so. Merriam continues to write, As a result of being on the front lines of the CBD movement, my million-dollar startup, HoneyColony.com, an online magazine and marketplace that focuses on empowering individuals, has been defrauded, robbed, and shut down numerous times by merchant processors. Interviews I've given have been taken down, and I've personally been banned by PayPal, GoFundMe, and just had a two-year-old benign video that promotes the benefits of CBD oil flagged and removed by your beloved YouTube. Despite the fact nothing in the video is inflammatory, San Bruno. YouTube starting San Bruno, I'm pretty sure. San Mateo, San Bruno. YouTube cannot publish, Miriam says, this video, but we can show a hunter blank, <clears throat> a woman in a bikini on the back of a wounded and dying moaning bear. Okay, I don't know what she's talking about there, but she does have a video in her link on her uh, that she's sent me on her website. That's absolutely disgusting. That's insane, said Rod Knight, or Kite, K-I-G-H-T, a cannabis lawyer. It's a good video. I'm sorry to hear that it was taken down by YouTube. There was a couple of references to health claims that arguably violate the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, FDNC Act. However, the claims were nothing more than what you can find on YouTube in any number of videos. I'm not sure why YouTube felt the need to remove this video. YouTube, like Facebook, is one of those large monolithic companies that do not listen or respond well to communications and demands, he says. Rod Kite. Look at CBD. Mean. Really, look at it, Merriam says. The government keeps trying to convince people that it's illegal. But it's happening, and it can't be stopped. People want it so we keep supplying it, and they keep purchasing it. The entire financial system is refusing to let us participate, and yet we're still doing it because people demand the medicine. And think about this, Merriam concludes. It isn't mind-altering. Usually, people make demands and refuse to fall to threats in order to get mind-altering drugs and plants. People are actually fighting for beautiful plant medicine, and it's not because it allows them to escape. It's because it allows them to heal. Can we parallel that with our discussion of last week? Mary Holland, New York, New York uh, University law professor with parent and author Wayne Road, joined this program here last week to talk about vaccine Threats. That is, and those are, elements of vaccines that may be threatening your children when injection. And not only your children. We now know that doctors in hospitals, if they refuse, depending on the hospital, to actually receive this, a flu shot, that they are fired for not accepting the flu shot. Okay, so far for taking time away uh, on sick leave, right? Uh, I mean, my, I think my father, when he was in his career, he worked over 20 years and never took a single day of sick leave. 
Um, so, so much for sick leave. You know, I get the guy, can't, 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 can't have the flu. Can't have the flu, Doc. Sorry, you got to take the flu shot and boom. If not, you're 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 out of you're out of business around these uh, around these walls. Um, so, lot going on there. That's honeycolony.com. Marin's been on my program twice before. I want to mention a couple things before cutting to a break and bringing uh, Ray on. RayMcGovern.com. That's his website. RayMcGovern.com. He's a former CIA uh, specialist. He's been outspoken about a number of things, and he addresses current issues on his website. So what I imagine he will be talking about today is Russian hacking. Circumstantial evidence points in that direction. So he'll talk about that. He will also go into uh, Rumsfeld having been lied by Donald Rumsfeld. He'll talk. He'll give us his opinion on Donald Trump. He'll give us his opinion on his association for, for writing daily memos to the Bush administration during the Iraq War. He'll also go into CIA ops officer Gene Coyle of something called the Nexus Program. Coyle basically uses the Nuremberg defense and Dick Cheney in defending Gina Haspel newly elected director of the CIA. So he'll be discussing a lot of issues with us, and we'll be very excited to bring him on the program, raymcgovern.com. Check it out. Finally, I want to thank John. If you're out there listening in Syracuse, I'm working on a new project. I will soon be releasing a book that you will be able to purchase from my website, and that is in the walk. That is in the works. So, John, thank you for all that you do and all your work, and I look forward to uh, years of collaboration. I will be right back with Ray McGovern.
Okay, welcome back. You are tuned in to Winwood Radio. I am your host for Discussions. Discussions of Truth is what this is being called. I've been on the radio here with Winwood for over a year and a half, and we've been very fortunate to bring incredible guests onto the platform to discuss various topics. Today, we host longtime member of the CIA, patriotic American Ray McGovern. Ray, are you there? Let's see. Let me try that again. Ray, can you hear me? Uh, I can. I can hear you. Um, can you hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Good, okay. Good day to you, sir. And uh, listeners that are interested, as I have mentioned before, please bookmark this page, uh, cement it into your browser, raymcgovern.com. That's R-A-Y-M-C-G-O-V-E-R-N.com. Ray, let me first say to you, thanks for being an activist. Thanks for taking a stance. Thanks for all that you have done. Would you take a moment and just reintroduce yourself to listeners? And I know that you've offered to go into this Russian issue, and I think that's where you were talking about. But would you give a quick introduction uh, uh, to yourself? Sure. Um, I was uh, a specialist on Russian foreign affairs, uh, having majored and gotten my master's degree in Russian studies. So when I finished uh, as an army officer uh, in early 60s, I went to the CIA as a, a, an analyst of actually Russian relations with China and the international communist movement. Uh, suffice it to say that I spent 27 years at the CIA. Um, I became the branch chief for Russian foreign policy and I also uh, worked on the president's daily brief for three presidents, Nixon, Ford, and Reagan, delivering it in person, one-on-one, to Reagan's five most senior foreign policy people, including the vice president, during Reagan's first term from 81 to 85. Uh, after I retired, uh, I'm working downtown in the, in the inner city, uh, but the church for whom I work, is really interested in making sure that we get the truth out. And so they thought, well, McGovern, you have certain credentials, <laughs> you have certain experience, <laughs> and certain credibility among people interested in the truth. So we'll pay you if you uh, publish, if you interview, if you give speeches, uh, because this is what church should be doing. And by the way, uh, we want it to be so that when they come for you, Ray, we want them to have to come for all of us. Mm. Now, is that the kind of church you like? Yeah, absolutely. I feel very privileged. So I've been working now, uh, well, in, in some, with some intensity since I saw Bush and Cheney preparing, uh, preparing to attack Iraq on uh, the basis of not mistaken intelligence. I'd like to make sure that your your listenership knows this. It was not mistaken, as Bush claims. It was fraudulent. It was fraud out and out from the very out from the very get go. And that is one of the profound sorrows of my life because I know these guys. I know these gals. I know these people. I work with them. And they let themselves be suborned into manufacturing and otherwise uh, adulterating evidence to justify what can only be called 
a war of aggression against Iraq, with the result that we all see, bedlam, millions killed in that part of the world. Ray, uh, let, let, me, let me ask you, what exactly did they misinterpret or misportray? Well, the, uh, let's, there were two major things that were reduced to, quote, justify, end quote, the attack. And one was weapons of mass destruction. Now, the analysts knew there were no weapons of mass destruction. And let me just give you, well, two things here. Uh, Dick Cheney said there were. Uh, he said that on the 26th of August, uh, 2002, and that set the stage for the estimate and for everything else, saying, oh, yeah, they have lots of chemical weapons, biological weapons, and they're working. They're almost got a nuclear weapon, blah, 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 blah. Now, when he said that, uh, a four-star general just retired named Tony Zinni, Marine Corps, was there. He was getting an award, okay? He was getting an award for service. Now, he was head of CENTCOM, which is the Central Command, which uh, has purview over that part of the world. And he knew exactly what the intelligence was, not only because he was commander, but after he retired, he was back on contract, as so many of them are, and had access to all the intelligence information. He sat there and listened to, turn, to, um, uh, to, uh, <laughs> to the Vice President Cheney uh, make up this, uh, this charge. Now, why didn't Zinni say anything? Well, because, well, oh, he did. I have to give him credit. He waited three and a half years, Ian, three and a half years to say, oh, you know, I knew that wasn't right. I just was really surprised that he would say that. Three and a half years, okay? So that's number one. Um, number two is, uh, well, a whole gamut of things that I could could adduce, but the the whole thing was, uh, was made out of whole cloth. And, um, you know, when you talk about torture as part of this uh, war of aggression. You know, uh, Nuremberg, the post-World War II tribunal, defined a war of aggression. And the definition was to perpetrate a war of aggression is to commit the supreme international crime differing from other war crimes only in as much as it contains the accumulated evil of the whole. Now, why do I say that? Well, accumulated evil of the whole, think torture, think kidnapping, think black prisons, think of what we did to people uh, when that war started. Now, why do I say that? Well, because uh, when Colin Powell, the Secretary of State at the time, was preparing to give this big address at the UN to, quote, justify, end quote, the attack which followed about six weeks later, um, he was preparing a speech at CIA headquarters with Larry Wilkerson, his aide-de-camp, his, uh, his chief of staff. Now, the weapons of mass destruction were kind of established as possibilities. But the other thing had to do with ties, active ties between al-Qaeda, who perpetrated 9-11, of course, and Saddam Hussein, head of, uh, head of Iraq. So... There were people in our government, and sad to say, in the intelligence community, who were eager to prove that there were ties, active ties between Al-Qaeda that did 9-11 and Saddam Hussein, who we wanted to attack. 
Now, the information that Larry Wilkerson and uh, Colin Powell were exposed to at CIA headquarters couldn't hold water. It was ephemeral. It was poorly sourced. It was it was a crock, as we say in the Bronx. Okay, so they went off into a, a little side room, thinking that no one would hear what they were saying. Ha ha ha! And they said, "Look, we're going to discard all this stuff on ties to an Al Qaeda in Iraq. It doesn't hold water. So let's go back in and tell them that." Well, they went back in, and George Tenet, the head of the CIA, wasn't there. And all of a sudden, he came rushing in, and he said, "Oh, gentlemen." Gentlemen, I have a wonderful news. We just got a report. It's from a person that we captured, an Al-Qaeda guy, and he says that he was the travel agent, and he used to keep sending Al-Qaeda operatives up to Baghdad to be trained in explosives and chemical warfare and other things by Saddam Hussein. So here, here's, here's the report. You kind of read it and put it in a speech. Now, you know, Colin Powell and Larry Wilkerson weren't born yesterday. But right. they succumbed, and they and they included in the report in in Colin Powell's speech, they included that uh, there was a quote sinister nexus end quote between Al Qaeda and Iraq. So that's how bad it was: the weapons of mass destruction that weren't there, and the sinister nexus. Last thing I'll say on this particular point is this: that we have a whole agency uh, devoted to satellite. Uh, imagery. It's not just photography. And it was headed at that point uh, by a fellow named Clapper, uh, James Clapper, who uh, has been in the news uh, more recently as head of the whole intelligence setup. Now, what did James Clapper do? Well, uh, he made sure that his analysts, that is the imagery analysts that poured over all the satellite imagery, uh, when they tried to verify a report that at this coordinate, this set of coordinates, there was a major chemicals, uh, chemical warfare facility, that uh, when they found out it was a chicken coop, they would not report that. Okay. Now, how do I know that? Well, I know that because of Clapper. I know that because the fact that he sat on all the disproving evidence. In other words, he knew darn well from satellite imagery that there were no weapons of mass destruction. Now, most recently, <laughs> he told an interview, he's got a book out, of course, he told an interviewer that, uh, that Bush and Cheney really wanted to make war in Iraq and, and quote, and we tried to help him, we tried to help him uh, and, and, you know, try to come up with the evidence and so forth. Well, that's not what intelligence is supposed to do. So the whole system is rotten, and Clapper has been in charge of the whole system uh, for the entire Obama years, and uh, just uh, just required just retired and wrote a book. So yeah, if that's not enough, I got other stuff. But it's really a sad situation, and right now we're doing the same thing with respect to Iran. And you know, if we get in, if we get involved in a in a battle or even a dust up with Iran. It's going to make Iraq look like a, oh, like a uh, like a volleyball game between St. Helena's and Mount St. Ursula High School, you know. Yeah. So you so so during the Bush uh, uh, junior years, that's when it sounds like um, you, you an eyebrow was raised for you in your career. Was there was there a time at all in the preceding 
administrations. That is H.W., Reagan, Nixon, in your time at the CIA, that you felt there was some odd things going on. Well, yes. Um, as I said, that I was a, uh, responsible for preparing the president's daily brief with some others uh, for for Nixon to begin with, and I, I was offered a uh, an opportunity to work down in the White House, <laughs> and I told my bosses, "You don't want to have McGovern anywhere near the Nixon White House. <laughs> it's so wow. damn corrupt." So that was my career enhancing. But I was able to tell the truth, and so were the rest of us, okay? Now, as we, as we went along there, uh, let's fast forward to Reagan. Now, I had a fellow who worked for me uh, way back in the early 70s. His name was Robert Gates. Sure. Uh, he was a pretty, pretty great heard guy. <laughs> What's that? I think I've heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> He was a pretty bright guy, uh, but I had some really first-rate analysts in my branch, some of them with PhDs in Russian studies, history, and so forth. And he wasn't one of the brightest, but he was good. So uh, the only problem with Bobby Gates was that he he kept uh, going to my bosses and to their bosses and, and telling them how great he was and how McGovern was really not so good, and he was trying to, to keep him uh, from telling all that he knew. So, long story short, I gave him a fitness report which said, uh, you know, doing a good job. He was the Soviet analyst on the Middle East, but that that his transparent ambition was a kind of a disruptive influence on the branch. (laughs) So fast forward 10 years, Bill Casey comes in to be head of uh, of the CIA under Ronald Reagan. He's a cold warrior from World War II. He, he substitutes communists for Nazis, and he needs somebody to help him find a communist or, or maybe a Russian under every rock, let's say, in Nicaragua. And Bobby Gates raises his hand. He said, Mr. Casey, I see three of them, right? Turn over this rocket. What? There are three Russians right there under that rock in Nicaragua. Now, that's a figurative, of course, but it's not far from the truth. He becomes chief of all analysis. Now, why do I mention all this? I mention all this because, number one, all my colleagues said to me, now, Ray, I, I, I bet you, you're sorry you gave him a, a candid fitness report. I said, nothing doing. <laughs> Glad that I told it like it is. But number two, he, reported, he, he promoted people who would simply salute and say, yes, Mr. Gates, yes, Mr. Gates, yes, Mr. Gates. So he picked uh, John McLaughlin, for example, who later became deputy director, to be head of the Soviet division, uh, because precisely because McLaughlin didn't know the first thing about uh, the Soviet Union. So fast forward here now uh, to from 1981 to 2002. Uh, it takes about a generation to to totally corrupt an institution. So here's George Tenet now. He's one of Gates's proteges. Uh, he's the head of CIA, and he has deliberately avoided doing an assessment of whether there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Okay? Here it is, 2002, okay? There are all, already rumblings. So it's clear that Bush and Cheney want a vote on war with Iraq. And when the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, they used to have some, some guts, uh, Bob Graham, when he learned about this, uh, he called uh, Tenet, 
George Tennant. He said, uh, George, uh, where's the estimate? What do you have on weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? <laughs> Tennant says, oh, we've been so busy. Oh, we, we just haven't had a chance to get to that. Well, you know, and, <laughs> and Graham, to his credit, says, look, George, no estimate on WMD in Iraq, no vote in Congress. I'm head of the Senate Intelligence Committee. I'm going to prevent it unless you give me an assessment. That's where Cheney comes in. That's where Tenet goes to the White House and says, oh, the jig is up. We have to do an estimate. Now, he knew damn well that the estimate would come out saying there yeah. is very, very little evidence. So my point is simply this. He goes back to the director's conference room at, uh, at Langley, and there around the table sit 10 or 12 sycophants, okay? These are people that bubbled up to the top since Gates by saluting and saying, yes, sir. Tenet says, look, uh, I hate to tell you this, but we can't avoid doing an estimate right now. I've just been at the White House. What they told me was, yeah, okay, go ahead and do it. But make sure, make sure it comes out exactly as Dick Cheney said it was on August 26th, and make sure that you do it in three weeks. Now, <laughs> you know what eventuated from that. The worst estimate in the history of the intelligence community. Iraq has all manner of weapons of mass destruction, and they got they have ties with al-Qaeda, sinister nexus, remember, and all this kind of stuff. So all I'm saying here is that people are really important. People can corrupt the whole agency. It does take a generation, but there you have, what, 20, 21 years from the time Gates took over under Casey, until George Tenet could could depend on these uh, sycophants to salute smartly and fabricate evidence to start a war of aggression. And you could see the bedlam, the millions killed in that part of the world because of that decision. Unbelievable. So, Ray, when you look back at personally meeting with um, the brass there at the White House, who would you say, in your opinion, was calling the shots in that administration? I, I hear Cheney's name being mentioned here, but uh, who's got a heavier weight, Cheney or Bush, in your opinion? Well, Cheney was the mastermind in all this. It's very clear. Um, he was indeed uh, running the government, and he was running in an informal way, uh, circumventing the procedures, as cumbersome as they sometimes are, but absolutely necessary, so everybody get a shot at, uh, at making big decisions. Now, Cheney was the author of not only of the war, but of the torture, and of other things that, that we don't even know about yet, but will be revealed in various books. So Cheney was the eminence grise. Uh, Bush was, uh, you know, very susceptible to Cheney's influence from the very start. Most people don't remember that. <laughs> Bush asked Cheney to find him a vice presidential candidate. And uh, Cheney came back three weeks later and says, you know, I, 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 I guess the best one would be me. Uh. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Hello? My God. You know, if you wrote a, you wrote, a, wrote a novel about this, it wouldn't sell because it's so strange. So I, I, I'd also like to get your opinion, uh, your reaction after 9-11. I've, I've, I get various sides, various opinions. Uh, it's a, one way or the other. It's a threat. What's, what's your take on what, went, what happened on 9-11? We know, that, we know that it seems like many of our rights are becoming infringed upon. I've had Paul Craig Roberts join the program. He says our U.S. Constitution is 
uh, merely the face of a puppet. It, 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 we don't have any more constitutional rights. Well, what's your opinion? What what happened that day, and 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 uh, what's what's transpired what's transpired from that day? Well, um, it's really hard to exaggerate the consequences of the nine eleven. That was the uh, liminal. That was the threshold uh, moment of this century. Um, immediately, uh, George W. Bush uh, wanted to move against Iraq. That evening, the evening of 9-11 itself, he was in the White House uh, bunker, actually, the first time he'd been there, with a, a couple of, uh, of his aides, Rumsfeld, uh, um, Tenet, Vice President, and others. And he said... Uh, Okay, uh, we got to go after Iraq. And Rumsfeld, of all people, said, "Well, you know, Mr. President, Iraq really didn't have anything to do with what happened today. It was, uh, it was uh, Al Qaeda." And Bush said, "That's all right. We're going after Iraq." The were next you, day, were you present next, here? I'm sorry, Ray. Were you no, present? No, but that no, but That's Richard the, Clark, okay. Richard Clark, who was present and was the president's uh, national, uh, national security advisor for terrorism, was there, and he put it in his book. The next day, Richard Clark is uh, ambling around the Situation Room with some of his, uh, of his workers, and Bush comes down, and he comes up to Clark, and he says, uh, tell me, was it Saddam Hussein? Was it Saddam Hussein? You know, 9-11. And uh, Richard Clark is, describes himself as being flabbergasted. He says, uh, Mr. President, no, it, it was al-Qaeda. That's what we tried to tell you that yesterday. No, it was al-Qaeda. And Bush says, well, well, well wait a second. Will you, you look into it. You, I know you're busy now, but unravel. Uh, you'll find, find, find whatever evidence you can that, uh, that uh, Saddam Hussein was involved. Huh. And uh, Clark respectfully said, oh, yes, sir. And when he went to his room... One of his colleagues came in at that point and said, what just happened here? And Clark said, what do you mean? <laughs> she says, you look like, your mouth is, is agape. You, what just happened here? And so he told them. Now, the White House denied that that happened, but later they admitted that Bush was wandering around and did have this conversation with Richard Clark. Now, that, there are a lot of things that could be drawn from that conclusion. And, and one is this. There comes a time when you could see that a war is brewing, uh, brewing, you could see what a president intends to do. What did Clark do? Well, it may never have occurred to him that he should have, that he should have, ought to, should have let the rest of us know about it. Right, Ian? Okay. Instead, what did he do? Well, he wrote a book. A few years and later. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he became a hero. And he tells all this stuff in his book. So, you know, whistleblowing is a, is a noble profession, particularly when can, you can stop a war of aggression. And that's why I have, have so much high regard for whistleblowers who have suffered, uh, suffered much but got the word out and sometimes prevented things from happening. So that was, uh, you know, that was part of the calculus there that led to the war on, uh, war on Iraq. And when people asked me initially in the first couple of months what it was all about, they, you know, they actually I testified before the Conyers Committee in Congress, and 
And after so much talk about what it wasn't, you know, it wasn't weapons of mass destruction by that time we knew that. It wasn't because ties between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda existed. No, no. They said, what was it? And so I said, well, I have an acronym. O-I-L. Okay. Uh-huh. Now, uh, now, John Stewart made fun of that. He says, you're, McGovern, you're violating the rules for acronyms. You can't have O-I-L and have O mentioned. <laughs> it was really, really funny, okay? But it was oil, I for Israel, and L for logistics, the oh. permanent military basis that we, we covered. Now, when I said that, of course, the press immediately called me an anti-Semite the next day. But Israel played a major factor in the decisions there, not only in cooking up intelligence that was used by Cheney, but otherwise promoting this fable that uh, this fellow Ahmed Chalabi, and people probably don't remember him, but he was the, the, the head of the emigres that were, were very popular in Congress uh, and elsewhere in Washington, cutting a wide swath and, and assuring people that he was very popular and they could put him in. As a matter of fact, the Defense Department did fly him in with a small army, and he was going to be the new Prime Minister of Iraq. Give me a break. Do you know? Do you know what the last time Ahmed Chalabi had been in Baghdad? Well, I trace it to when the Brooklyn Dodgers left Brooklyn for Los Angeles. 1958. My God. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so, so you know, there was something else afoot here. It was the oil. It was Israel, and Israel really wanted us to go after Iran first. But they they said, well, do Iraq first, and then we'll get Iran. And that's where we are now. Okay. And now it's not O I L. I used to say O I L in in equal proportions. Oil, Israel, and uh, logistics. Now, now it's 40 percent. Israel, it's thirty percent Saudi Arabia, and those are the major driving forces behind this ridiculous, uh, ridiculous campaign to say two basic untruths. Number number one, that Iran is not abiding by the uh, Iran deal, the nuclear deal that was concluded in in two thousand fifteen. They are the UN. Uh, the UN agency verified that today. And the other is that Iran is the prime sponsor of international terrorism. Now, Americans don't have any way of knowing this, but let me just tell you what that, what that really is, okay? Yes, Iran was the prime sponsor of international terrorism, but that was four decades ago. <laughs> like, <laughs> four decades ago. Now, who is it? It's Saudi Arabia. It's Israel. And it's the good old U.S. of A. Interesting, interesting, Ray. So it, it, let me let me let me just throw a name out here and see if you have anything to say about uh, this this name. Is a former Stanford Hoover fellow. Does the name Anthony Sutton ring a bell with you on any any levels or any areas? The last name is Sutton. Yes, S U T T O N. No, no, it rings no bells. Okay. Um, we can go into a different area, but just the background on, on that is that he was, uh, he was talking about in 1972, he was talking about, um, he, he, he was merely interested as to why, uh, Ford, some of the, some of the big American companies were involved in trades with Russia and even Germany at different 
periods of war, and that would be starting back in World War II and then up through Vietnam. But uh, but we can go uh, in a, in a different different angle. Um, well, Ian, uh, let me pick yeah. up on, on 1972 because that's sure. a real key year. Um, as I mentioned, uh, I headed up the Soviet foreign policy branch at CIA, and I had three people working on what we call the SALT talks, the, the strategic arms limitation talks. Uh, Bobby Hayes was one of them, uh, two others. Uh, and one of them was on the delegation that was negotiating with the Soviets. One was uh, backing up the military end of things, and the other one was writing foreign policy stuff uh, for us uh, back in headquarters. Now, why do I mention all this? Well, I got to go. I got to go to the conclusion, to the signing of the SALT Agreement in May of 1970. I was there in Moscow, May of 1972. Nixon, Kissinger, they came over there and they signed the deal. Now, why is it, you know, am I bragging? No, I'm not bragging. That was a liminal event. That, that That was a threshold event where finally, some common sense uh, was put in place, whereas before the strategic rivalry uh, involved an endless uh, race uh, for offensive weapons and defensive weapons. There was lots of talk of, of uh, Star Wars even before Reagan, uh, build an anti-ballistic missile system and all that. And finally, cooler heads prevailed. And the Russians and we came to an agreement and was called the Anti-Ballistic Missile uh, treaty. So it was a formal treaty. And what did it do? Well, it, it bound both sides to build no more than two anti-ballistic missile systems. Hmm. Now, why was that? Well, because if you only have two, uh, then you can't possibly expect to be able to launch a preemptive strike and not be destroyed completely in return, okay? Later, it was reduced to one, okay? Hmm. Now, what was our role? Well, our role was to give, a, give a, uh, uh, Nixon a, a good uh, feel for what the Russians were really after. Could they be trusted? Well, we said, no, we never trust the Russians. We trust, but then we verify. Okay, So that was before Reagan, trust, but verify. Nixon said, how, if, the, if the Soviets cheat, how soon would you be able to tell me? And we said, you mean like if they build a, another anti-ballistic missile system in a place where they're not allowed to? Yeah, yeah. In two weeks? Well, that's good enough. Two weeks is good. Now, did the Russians cheat? Yes, the Russians cheated. Did we find it? Yes, we found it within one week. What was it? A terrific, a terrifically high, big, <laughs> immense radar system in Krasnoyarsk, way out in Siberia. Did we tell uh, Reagan? Because that's when it happened. Yeah, we told Reagan. What did Reagan do? Did he fire off? Did he, you know, did he threaten to destroy it? <laughs> no. He said, "Look, you guys talk to the Soviets. Make sure they know what we know. Show them the show them the images, and make sure they destroy it." Now it took six years. They destroyed it. Okay, that's the way we used to do business. So anyhow, what I'm saying here is 1972. We set a strategic uh, framework where there was a degree of stability, uh, really, that came of a balance of terror. You, you, you try to strike us first. There's no way you can prevent us from striking you right back because anti-ballistic systems by that time were limited to one. Now, 
what did John Bolton, who's the new security mm -hmm. advisor, to, what did he do under George W. Bush and Dick Cheney? They said, well, we don't need that uh, treaty anymore. Uh, that treaty allows us to get out of it. So in 2001, Bolton, Cheney said, hey, George, let's get out of the treaty. I said, well, okay, if that's what we want to do. So, so we, we got out of the treaty in 2002. Now, 30 years of stability, all up in smoke now. We are building anti-ballistic missile systems in, in Europe, oh in Asia, and the Russians are, you know, Russia, I'd be scared. I'd be scared. I would be working on systems that would circumvent them, and that's precisely what they've done. So is there strategic stability now? No, not the kind that existed for those 30 years. And who's to blame? Well, it's Cheney, of course, but Bolton was the fly in the ointment, and now he's in a position to funnel whatever intelligence and whatever policy recommendations go into the new president, President Trump. It's a very labile, as the Germans would say. It's a very delicate situation, and I fear for what will come. The only, the only uh, bright spot in all this is that Bolton, in my view, overplayed his hand. He didn't want any accord with North Korea. You know? So he, he tried to put the kibosh on it, and he failed. It looks like the summit is going forward. Now, cooler heads prevailed. Now, Bolton has been shoved aside, even when the North Korean uh, very, very high senior leader came. Um, Pompeo, the new Secretary of State, was able to prevent Bolton from <laughs> appearing in any of the meetings, okay? So hopefully, hopefully Trump is smart enough to say, look, this guy could put the, he, he could, he could sabotage any agreement with North Korea that we come to. And he's also, of course, a, a Islamophobe, uh, and he's in the forefront of those wanting to make, well, they keep, keep saying bomb, bomb, bomb Iran, just like John McCain. So so maybe Bolton is on his way out. Uh, people don't last very long in that position, and it is my hope that uh, with this particular guy, uh, Trump says you're fired quicker than with the others. The apprentice. Uh, Ray, what about the you've mentioned oil and I, lo I love that I love the the Israeli for I and and I hosted a um, a senator from Mississippi uh, that that his case was thrown out he tried to unseat Tad Cochran for U.S. Congress um, he had evidence of voter fraud in that state um, prior to him I had on like an author that spoke about his research in in 9/11 but but in 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 kind of defining that element uh, or that that I in in your acronym there of, of Israel do, do you find any consistencies we can even go back as far as uh, with 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 US negotiations um, with Israel or those the, the powers that 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 manage Israel uh, going back to like the ball floor uh, ball forward declaration do you, does anything stick out in your mind historically well the history is interesting enough um, I know more about recent history than uh, yeah. Balfour. Um, let me put it this way. When you try to figure out why the United States should be involved in Syria, why it should be involved in Iran, well, in both cases, Israel is the main factor. And, you know, it would be more understandable had not our first president, who was a general, of course, and knew about these things, 
Washington warned us against passionate attachments of one country to another on the false assumption that our ideals and that our objectives are the same. Now, that goes in spades with respect to Israel. Now, why, let's just take one microcosm here. When Americans kind of ask these questions, they say, well, what, what threat does Syria pose to us? Well, the answer, of course, is zero, okay? Well, why are we there? Why are we spending billions of dollars on, quote, moderate, end quote, rebels to overthrow Assad? Why do we tolerate the chaos that exists in Syria for the last seven years? Well, the answer is very... Now, very seldom do you get the New York Times telling the truth anymore. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to advertise this one, one instance where in, uh, let's see, it was early September 2013, when Obama was threatening to bomb Syria because of, uh, well, a false flag sarin attack outside of Damascus, uh, and he was going to Congress to, to get permission well, um, the head of the New York Times Bureau in Jerusalem, her name was Jody Ruderin, and to her credit, she said, you know, I think maybe I'll find out what the uh, leading Israeli officials uh, feel about this. So she went, and she talked to several of them. Uh, they're happy to talk to the New York Times, of course. And she said, now, uh, tell me, what's your, what's your preferred outcome in Syria? Now, the answer that she got was this. Well, uh, this doesn't sound very uh, humanitarian, but uh, Jody, our preferred outcome is no outcome. And she said, "Should we say si vous play?" I mean, I said, "Hello, I'm waiting, no outcome." And they said, "Well, this, you know, it doesn't really sound very good, but you know, we look at it as a playoff game, uh, where you don't want either side to win, and you don't want either side to lose either, as, as long as it, as long as these people hemorrhage." As long as this bloody struggle between Sunni and Shia continue, not only in Syria, but in the whole region, quote, Israel has nothing to fear from Syria, period, end quote. Now, did that get in the New York Times? <laughs> Wonder of wonders. The, the high muckety-mucks, as my grandmother used to call them, the, the, the top officials and the censors were off in the Hamptons having martinis on a Labor Day week, and it got on the front page a uh, prime article there on the 6th of September, 2013. I urge people to read it because it's the only time the New York Times told the truth about how the Israelis want this thing to continue because as long as there's chaos in Syria, there's no threat to them. And besides, it's really, really hard for Iran or anyone else to resupply Hezbollah in Lebanon if there's chaos in Syria. That's, you know, pure and simple. It's a war that Syria, that uh, Israel wants us to do, and so we, and the Saudis, of course, are part of that too. Saudis are are big; uh, they they don't like Assad, and so the, the Saudis and Israel are deriving our policy now. That happens to be the case, and it's not unusual. Israel has been uh, been driving our policy for a long time. Now, there's one incident that your listeners might not know about, and I need to mention in this respect, and that is that. During the, the Six-Day War in 67, <clears throat> the Israelis on June 8th, 67, uh, tried mightily to sink a U.S. naval ship called the USS Liberty. Mm -hmm. It was an intelligence collection ship. Um, they almost sunk it and uh, killed all the crew of 278. Uh, they did kill 34 and wounded 172. 
And they were never held accountable for that because LBJ, as he told the naval commander, didn't want to to tar with a with a dark brush our ally Israel. So uh, that's when the Israelis learned literally that they could get away with murder, and the Washington and Congress and even the U.S. Navy, to its discredit, would not say boo. I know several of the survivors of that incident. Mm-hmm. And you want to talk about PTSD, yeah. talk to them. Incredible. Thanks for sharing that, Ray. Uh, what I'm reminded of, and, and this is, actually goes back to, uh, to my research on, on Anthony Sutton, uh, again, uh, former uh, fellow at, Hoover, at the Hoover, uh, Stanford Hoover Institute. Uh, he, he spoke about uh, something called the Hegelian dialectic. That's Frederick Hegel. Um, but it's, it, 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 when, you, when you were mentioning uh, uh, Jody, uh, uh, that's that's exactly or, or Judy. Uh, that's exactly what what I thought. We, you know, we we don't want we, we don't want this. We we don't want an outcome. We don't want we want them both to bicker. I mean, that's just a, that's yeah, it's it's this uh, uh, military industrial complex uh, war machine type attitude. Uh, regardless, control both opposites to uh, uh, to control the, the regardless of the outcome. You're you're uh, you're, you're benefiting. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, Eisenhower, another president and military general like Washington, you know, he talked about the military-industrial complex. What he wanted to say, and most people don't know this, is the military-industrial congressional complex. Mm. And right now, we have the military-industrial congressional intelligence media complex, and that's big. That's big. Now, and, you know, I've been here for 55 years now in Washington, and I've seen a lot of change. But the biggest change of all is the fact that we no longer have, in any real sense, a free media, and that's big. The fourth estate is dead. The only hope now is that people like you and others uh, in, the, uh, in the ether and on the Internet can repair the damage and get people to start listening to people who know what they're talking about and not selling anything like war. Thank you. Uh, you're not the first to say that, um, so it's uh, interesting. It, I, I do appreciate you saying that. Um, we've got a few more minutes. Let's extend this a little bit because I do want I do want you to address uh, Gene Coyle uh, and Gina Haspel. Uh, I know that uh, you were recently outspoken about uh, Gina, and um, and I, I don't know if you were arrested for that or not, but. Uh, but you can, if you would spend a few moments and talk to talk about that, and then if there's anything else that you would like to address, please do that. Sure. Well, when Gina Haspel was going before the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is really just a function of the intelligence community, in other words, they joined at the hip with CIA. They approved the torture. They approved the illegal eavesdropping. So if you expect them to be an oversight, well, oversight in the sense of overlook committee, that's exactly what they are. But there they were having a public hearing. And, of course, I usually go to these things since I live in the area. So I'm sitting there, and the head of the committee, a fellow from North Carolina called uh, Richard Burr, he said, now, we're going to have a public hearing, and there will be people that will want us to make a statement. Now, if, if you have to, if you're in the audience, you have to make a statement, uh, make it. Be quick, be fast, and be gone. Huh, be <laughs> and gone. everybody chuckles. <laughs> and be gone, yeah. So I'm saying, whoa, there's a little macho there, but, you know, it, it, maybe that's a little invitation that I could. Well, I waited an hour and a half, 
And Gina Haspel, the candidate, the nominee for head of the CIA, she was asked by Senator Wyden of Oregon. She said, he, he said, now I'm running out of time, uh, Ms. Haspel. Just yes or no. Were you supervising uh, the waterboarding of al-Nashiri in that black site in Thailand, yes or no? Uh, Senator, I, I can't tell you that because, um, because it's classified. Mm, sure it is. <laughs> now, he's out of time, right? So the next question would have been, well, Ms. Haspel, who classified that? And she would have had to say, well, actually, I, I classified that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 So, wow. you know, here you have an ostensibly public hearing so the American people can know what kind of person has been nominated to be head of the CIA, and she's allowed to classify derogatory <laughs> bad information on her that would have automatically disqualified. Oh, we go into executive session to talk that. Well, that was it for me. As soon as the policeman between me and Haspel disappeared to go to the bathroom, so I went up gently and I said, excuse me for interrupting, but I think that Senator Wyden is due a, a, a straight answer to his question. Uh, you weren't, oops, and then four guys had sent it on me, and uh, you could see the rest on web videotape. Um, so when I debated this with a former case officer from the operations part of CIA, which really is hermetically sealed uh, or used to be uh, off from the analysis part in which I worked. Um, you know, he repeated the, the, the line that, well, she was, uh, she was uh, obey, obeying orders. She was just doing what she was told, and she was told that it was legal. Well, there ain't no way you can make torture legal, no matter how many corrupt <laughs> lawyers. You know, that's the yeah. truth, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no matter how many corrupt lawyers you get to say it's legal, it ain't legal. And uh, so uh, that was a, you know, operations guy who was sort of defending her, saying, well, she only did what she was told. Well, that's precisely why she, she shouldn't be, be head right. of the CIA, because the president is a, a aficionado of torture. He says it works. It doesn't work. And that's no, the important thing. Proven. Let me right. just, yeah, let me just quote the, the head of Army Intelligence when, George Bush decided to to um, laud to praise the uh, the effectiveness of what he calls enhanced interrogation techniques. His name was John Kimmons, and on the morning that he knew Bush was going to do this, it happened to be July six, two thousand and six. Kimmons got up an hour before Bush <laughs> in the Pentagon at a press conference, and he said this quote. No good information has ever come from harsh interrogation techniques. Beautiful. History shows that, and the empirical evidence of the last five years, comma, hard years, comma, also shows that five years, uh, 2006 minus five, 2001, when Haspel and her colleagues there were devising these stupid, these enhanced interrogation techniques which were precisely the same ones that the Gestapo used in World War II, and I can prove that. As a matter of fact, the word that the Gestapo chapter for techniques for interrogation, the word for the, the, the uh, chapter was Verschaffte uh, Vernehmung. Verschaffte means sharpened or enhanced Vernehmung interrogation techniques, and most of them were precisely the ones with some enhancements uh, that uh, those CIA nicks were persuaded to use and never got 
any any actionable in, uh, intelligence from. Most people don't realize that, but the Senate spent four years investigating that, and they said there was not one bit of actionable intelligence gotten from these techniques that wasn't available through other more traditional interrogation ways. I was an army. I was an army intelligence officer. I know this by the book. I know what we were allowed to do. I know what we're not allowed to do. And for Colin Powell and the rest of them just to sit around Zinni and all these generals and, say, and, and watch their armed forces be corrupted by a guy like Cheney was a little bit hard to hard to stomach. Well said. Thank you, Ray. Uh, Ray, it's been been more than a pleasure to to host you uh, on uh, Windwood Radio and uh, discussions of truth. Do you have? Uh, some parting words for listeners. Yeah, I think that uh, I think we're at a, a really crucial pass right now. Uh, as I see it, and as I said before, it requires Americans to get off their rear ends and find out what's really going on. Do I pretend that that's easy? No, it's not easy. But you're not going to get it from watching TV, and you're not going to get it from reading newspapers even the Miami Herald or whatever, okay? What you need to do is find out where the truth is, find out the websites that you can go to and learn the truth, and do it. Uh, because only armed with, with what you, you need to know can you realize how parlous our civil liberties are, how, how close we are to, uh, to cataclysmic war, not only with Iran, but the way they're basing Russia, it's, it just make, doesn't make so sense at all. So, so all, all I'd say is that uh, there is uh, there is a need to to get get the information. And you know, one of my heroes is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And he talked about uh, what he in his uh, famous letter from the Birmingham City Jail. He said, "Let's see if I can remember it." He said. Uh, um, like a boil that can never be cured unless it is lanced and let flow with all this pus-flowing ugliness and exposed to the light of human conscience and the air of national opinion, it will never be cured. And so what we need to do is find out the truth about these things, expose it, and then I have a basic confidence in the American people that they do the right thing, but they can't do the right thing unless they know what that right thing is. So good luck, and programs like yours, Ian, I think will, will really help. I have not given up hope, but we're at that stage now where extraordinary measures are, are needed, and it's no longer possible to sit back and watch TV. Thank you, Ray. Ladies and gentlemen, Ray McGovern. Ray, I look forward to inviting you back on the program. Have a great day. You're most welcome. Bye now. RayMcGovern.com. You have just heard an incredible, incredible American. This program started over 18 months ago. And since its inception, it has received incredible guests. This man gave his entire life to serving 
his country. Former, former Army officer from the Nixon to the Bush Jr. administrations. This man was in the upper echelon of information and intelligence. You just heard him. There is a military industrial media complex. The reason this show receives the caliber of people that it does is because your liberties and your freedoms, your country as you know it, needs you. I'll cut to a quick break, and I'll be right back for some closing remarks. You're tuned in to winwoodradio.com. And I'm your host of the weekly Wednesday program that starts at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard, Discussions of Truth. Ian Hamilton, Trottier.
You are the last hope, folks. Okay, I didn't turn the mic on, so you just lost. You just lost that outro. You just lost. Let me repeat it because it's important. As I closed out with Metallica there, as I shut that off, I'm sorry, you probably got two minutes of stale air. I self-produce. You just got it from the word of a man that spent five decades in Washington. You are the last hope. I am talking to you. The American who loves this country, who's patriotic, it is you that needs to stand up, raise your voice, and look into some of these issues that are crippling your Constitution. I cannot say that loud enough. That is what I have found of a year and a half of really innocent investigation as to what the heck is going on. And it started with a pesticide that was sprayed over my head against the wishes of over 300 irate residents in a town hall meeting in Miami Beach. Your rights, your freedoms, your liberties, they are at stake. Okay? Simple as that. That's my opinion. But you also just heard it from Ray McGovern. That would seem to be his opinion as well. Woo! Okay, so, now, a couple quotes for you before I tune out. The Central Intelligence Agency owns everyone of any significance in the major media. Who said that? Other than the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, William Colby. I got another one for you. We'll know our disinformation program is complete when everything in the American public believes is false. That is William Casey, 1981. Ring a bell, Charlotte Eiserbutt, former senior policy advisor of the Reagan administration that has been on this program. The dumbing down of America. And finally, a quote, simple, short, Concise, from the founder of the General Education Board, said in approximately 1915 in Rockland, Maine, by John David Rockefeller. He is quoted as saying, I don't want a nation of thinkers. I want a nation of workers. He doesn't want thinkers. He doesn't want you. That was in 1915. He didn't want you to think for yourself. He wanted you to work for him. Okay? <laughs> so, I, I, I mean, I, I do this. I self-produce this. I do this for you. I do this for this country. I do this for people like Ray McGovern. I do this for people like John Kiriakou. I do this for people like Wayne Road. I do this for people like... Like, like the folks that have been on, that, 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 that are in Canada, that have vaccinated, that have vaccine injured kids. I do this for us, for civilization, for humankind. Okay, I do it because I know there's problems, discussions of truth. I'm your host. Wednesdays, five o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here, WinwoodRadio.com. I thank Miriam Hennen for her for her work and her uh, her insert today on the honeybees and i think uh, additionally uh, ray mccovern for for joining the program uh 
That's it, folks. That's all I've got for today. Um, but until next week, with Nomi Prince, how the, inter- the how the bankers rigged the world, how the bankers collusion, how the bankers rigged the world. There's a former Goldman Sachs executive that's titled her book as such. Tune in. And until then, I admonish you to be awesome.